Are you ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no-excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our store up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro. Hey there, everyone. I'm Sarah Weldon, CEO of Trufinco, a finance company dedicated to helping both budding and established small businesses. I'm thrilled to be hosting Business Perfect Formula, a podcast designed to demystify business funding, real estate investing, and business credit. My goal is to simplify the complexities of alternative lending, showing you that navigating the financial landscape can be straightforward and stress-free. Business Perfect Formula is available wherever you listen to podcasts. If when a case arrives, you prevaricate, you're half-hearted, you pretend it's not real, and you wait perhaps two, three, four weeks before you start to implement measures of any kind that are serious, what happens is that it basically doubles in scale every two to three days. I don't think the listening has kept up with the learning. I think there's been an incredible speed of learning, incredible dissemination of lessons. And the other thing, of course, was it was landing on not deaf ears, but ears that wanted to hear a different story. They wanted to hear it was going to be okay, that this was like flu, this is like seasonal flu. And it's not, and it never was. We knew that from day one. If we can turn up the volume now, particularly with self-discipline by people and really good quality public health, and that will shorten the period of misery. But if we can't turn up the volume, if we can't do it as a responsible society, then the misery will go on a lot longer. It's all in our hands. Welcome to the Global Goalscast, the podcast that explores how we can change the world. In this episode, lessons from the pandemic. We can stop this virus. That is the first and most important lesson, but only if we quickly act on what China, Italy, and other places have already learned. We will hear from two of the most important public health doctors in the world, who tell us the challenge right now is not about science or medicine. It is about communications and listening and cooperating. It is about turning up the volume and we are going to turn up the volume right now. I'm Edie Lush. And I am Claudia Romo-Edelman. Claudia, it's only three months since the world first encountered a new coronavirus and the frightening illness that it brings, called COVID-19. One of the scariest things about this virus is the explosive way that it spreads. The pandemic is accelerating. It took... 67 days from the first reported case to reach the first 100,000 cases. 11 days for the second 100,000 cases. And just four days for the third 100,000 cases. And by the way, only three days to reach 400,000 cases. That was the head of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros. He is from Ethiopia, and he has been handed a big job getting the world to act together to stop this coronavirus. Like billions of people all around the world, we here at Global Goalscast have had our lives and our plans turned inside out. I've been staying at home, sheltering in place with my family here in London. And I am working here from home in New York City, where officials are fearful that the spread of the COVID-19 will soon overwhelm medical services. So, 
we wanted to do something useful in this podcast. And I know that so many people feel the same way. So like most of you, we are adapting. This is the first of a series of episodes in which by doing what we do at Global Goalscast, we hope to be some value in this crisis. That's right. We always look for the solutions. We ask who's succeeding, who are the champions making things better, and then we share that with you. And it turns out that is badly needed right now, because it turns out the virus is spreading faster than the world's ability to understand and act on what we already know about how to stop it. So this episode is about what we already have learned in one place and how can we adopt it in other places while there is still time. So to sum up those lessons, our editor, Mike Oreskes, and I sought out two of the world-leading public health figures. The first is Dr. David Navarro. Claudia, you and I know him really well. He is not only part of the advisors of the Global Goalscast from day one and my former boss, but he's the right guy for this job. The special advisor for the World Health Organization in coronavirus. He's the one who worked in Ebola and SARS and others. So I'm super pleased to have Dr. David Navarro on the show. Just to give you a, a, a perception of where I think uh, the world is right now. Yeah, please. Uh, this, this pandemic actually advances as a, a number of small outbreaks that then grow quickly into large outbreaks and then become explosive. The truth is that actually it doesn't have to go on advancing exponentially. It can be contained. And we've got really good evidence now from China, from South Korea and from Singapore that it doesn't have to double in scale every two or three days. And if you respond early, as soon as you've got a case that's been discovered or an early chain of transmission by isolating the person who's got the disease and then by finding the contacts the person has had, following up those contacts, quarantining them. And if you do that rigorously, backed up by testing, and you have a really well-disciplined public health workforce supported by communities that know what they've got to do, this can be contained. And I think that's probably what's happening in Japan, where they're going about life normally. But if when a case arrives, you prevaricate, you're half-hearted, you pretend it's not real, and you wait perhaps two, three, four weeks before you start to implement measures of any kind that are serious, what happens is that it basically doubles in scale every two to three days. And so after two to three weeks, you have an absolutely massive number of cases and your hospitals get overloaded. And in the end, in order to deal with that, you have to implement these draconian lockdowns that totally damage your economy, make a lot of people poor, make people super upset, and don't necessarily, unless you're able to do an absolutely massive effort, don't necessarily push it back. But if you can do the massive effort, as is happening now in Italy, sooner or later you push it back. But if you act on day one, two, or three, you really have to use so much less of a response and you have so much less damage to the fabric of society than if you act on day 21. Now, this was a life lesson available to us in mid-February from China, beautifully written up by the team that went to China from all over the world. And I remember at that time putting the word round, uh, but I wasn't the only one, of course, Tedros of WHO did it, saying, come on, do it quick, and you can get on top of it. Play it slow, underplay it, or whatever you do, you will get really badly damaged. And so the big damage is in Italy now, in Spain now, in France now. Uh, it's coming into other places. Germany are being very clever and doing a good response. They'll probably be not too bad. They've really, really pulled their stops out. But what I do say is that just look at the experiences of places that have done it well. And those of you who are in New York or in California 
or in Seattle, yours will come in about two and a half weeks. I mean, it may come quicker. Because yeah, I get feels- stories now of emergency rooms are filling up. If people are not doing testing, which they're not in very much in the US and in Europe, we have to accept that the global figures are a massive underestimate. We have to accept that the national figures are an underestimate. So what do we go on? Crudely, it's how many friends we know who are stuck at home with high fever and cough. And also what we're hearing from health workers who are working in emergency rooms of hospitals. As it gradually builds up, and as we've seen in Italy, you know, the undertakers can't do their work and a whole load of other things are going on. As it gradually gets worse, then governments tend to panic a bit. Hang on. As that phone you hear suggests, Dr. Nabarro is spending his days talking to colleagues all around the world. He is very worried where the pandemic will go if it isn't curtailed now. That is basically my big message for everybody. And why am I saying it? Because two reasons. One is, even when you've got a big outbreak happening like Italy is having, or like Spain is having, you can still beat it back. And you've got to, because if you don't, it will just go on and on and on, get worse and worse and worse. Because it'll take some time before you really infect all the people in your population who are susceptible. So you have to go on pushing it back. It's just that you need massive force. And lockdown on its own isn't enough. You have to keep the good public health work going, and you can't give up on that. But the second reason why I'm saying it is that in all countries, what's happening in Milan or what's happening in Seattle right now would be very damaging. You see, you've got so many people who are just barely scraping by on cash income. And the first sectors that will go in any nation are the sectors that employ a lot of casual labor, like hospitality and travel, and even construction, which is being hit over here. So the economic and societal consequences for poor countries are going to be much, much greater than they are in rich countries or in countries that have got capacity in society for social protection, like Singapore, like South Korea, like China. And so I really want very, very quickly to get the message out that poor countries, when they get the first case or two, instead of waiting and saying it's not that bad really, and following the example of some European or North American nations who've been a little slow, they've got to be really, really rapid, rigorous and robust from the beginning and bring their people with them and say, if you want to avoid the kind of mess that we're seeing in Europe, we have to be really focused from the beginning. I'm seeing signs of this. I talked to a great colleague called Sambaso in Mali, and they're getting really themselves really organized. We know there are cases in South Africa. We were talking last night with colleagues from the African Union Development Agency who've got a base in uh, Pretoria and they're getting very, very organized. So I want to just really make this point that poor countries have a chance of not being really put into a most dramatic impoverishment. It means crash upgrade of public health capacity, possibly bringing in medical students and others to support community public health workers. It means informing the population so that they're partners in the response. It means working on the economic and societal implications from the start so as to prepare social protection for the people who are most vulnerable. It also means the whole of government recognizing that one of the things we're seeing in Africa at the moment is rising food prices already. And so we've got to be prepared for increases in hunger and possibly civil disturbance. Riots in prisons have been happening in France and in Italy, and they're likely to happen in other parts of the world as well, as prison visits are stopped, and as in some cases prison staff go on strike or have to stop during their work because they're quarantined. Perhaps the most important thing message I'd like to get out is this. We've seen 
that a period of miscoordination between provincial and federal health authorities led to a bit of uncertainty as to what to do. And um, that's been admitted and mistakes have been identified and have been, uh, situations been rectified. We see in Europe, different countries are doing different things, shutting their borders arbitrarily and all that sort of stuff. Every day lost in getting global solidarity is a massive impact. Every three days lost, we've got double the size of the problem to deal with. So what on earth are governments doing? Why aren't they just saying we will use all the coordination mechanisms at our disposal to deal with this as a common enemy? As was done for bird flu in 2005, as was done for the H1N1 pandemic in 2009, as was done for Ebola after a bit. And so I, I just find myself wondering whether the failure of multilateral behavior that we're seeing now in 2020 is going to prove to be our complete undoing because this is not going to stop where it is now. Who knows? We might be 5% of the way in. David, could I take you back for a second to February 24th? I'm very interested in your judgment about what didn't happen at that moment. Why didn't those findings get fully out? I don't know whether this was that they didn't get communicated or that they, they were communicated all right. They were right. communicated so, so, then, right. so then why didn't they reach people? Why didn't they sink in? What, I don't know. What's the, what's I mean, the I reason I have hypotheses. I have hypotheses, yeah. but I, a serious leader would realize that electability depends on good leadership. But quite a lot of the leaders we have at the moment have found it hard to lead and hard to take the tough decisions that are needed to lead on behalf of your people. And they have looked at what Xi Jinping did and they've managed to find fault with it. They've not recognized that what he did was superb. And also what the South Korean leadership have done mm-hmm. and what the Singaporean leadership have done. And of course, the reason why they moved quickly is they had SARS in 2002, so they didn't really need an awful lot of explanation. They knew how much hardship they faced as a result of being half-hearted on SARS for some months. But that still doesn't excuse, really, the leadership of European and North American nations. It just doesn't excuse them. And I think that it's more a wish to try to make light of it, a wish to try to imply that somehow everybody was wrong, a wish to try to brazen their way through it. The cost of those two or three weeks, I think, are going to prove to be extraordinary in lost years of development, in destruction of the financial system, in widespread unemployment in the 30% of industry of, of the GDP that is made up of sectors that involve contact with people or travel or tourism. That's Goldman Sachs figures from yesterday. Mm. I'm pleading with people everywhere just to, even now, to heed the lessons because they're in front of our eyes. It will be an absolute, total miracle if there's not uh, massive outbreaks in the United States. Right. With huge impact on the lives of poorer Americans. What we will end up happening is that Europe and North America will turn out to be the amplifiers of something that increases poverty, but which is actually harder for the poor countries to take. So Europe and North America, with all their financial stimuli and all that stuff, will bluster their way through. But there'll be no financial stimuli and no safety nets for people in urban slums in Indian subcontinent or in Africa. I hope I'm wrong. Asked Dr. Navarro about developments here in the United Kingdom. 
Well, I think the UK is getting better. Can just work on community involvement, taking it super seriously. It's a responsibility of everyone. Make sure your health workers can get to work. Treat them like royalty, or like you in America treat the military. Don't give up. And then I've got a whole series of things that I'm offering on the struggle. Because of the delay in Britain, there'll be a lot of small businesses that are going to go under. A lot of people feeling very angry. And uh, we've just got to try to help people to actually realize that if we can turn up the volume now, particularly with self-discipline by people and really good quality public health, then that will shorten the period of misery. But if we can't turn up the volume, if we can't do it as a responsible society, then the misery will go on a lot longer. It's all in our hands. Turn up the volume, says Dr. David Navarro, and that is what he has been doing all his life, being able to turn up the volume and make sure that people actually massively act. Dr. David Navarro has been a friend of this Global Goalscast since the day we started. For more, he sent us to one of the world's most experienced voices on infectious diseases, and that is Dr. Bruce Elward. When the World Health Organization needed someone to go to China in February to understand what was happening, they sent Dr. Elward to lead the mission. That report, released in late February, warned that the world was not prepared to combat this new virus. And sadly, the message did not get through. Edie and Mike spoke to Bruce Aylward from the WHO office in Geneva. Can I ask why you think the world wasn't ready? Why they didn't listen? I think there were a combination of factors. One was this was a new disease, which the West didn't really understand. It didn't trust all of the information that it was hearing. And, you know, we are all human <laughs> at a certain level, and we tend to cherry pick that part of the information, which we find most reassuring. Okay, this is happening in the winter, but it's going to be spring for us, and we'll be out of flu season, so it won't be so bad. Oh, uh, the mortality rate was really bad in Wuhan, but in the rest of China, it was really low, so it'll be really low here. Oh, this is actually more like flu than it is like SARS, so the mortality rate will be really low. So there was a lot of cherry-picking of those aspects of, uh, of the disease that were least unsettling to us, um, rather than really preparing. I think we're going back and relearning a lot of the lessons from China, and in fact, with the work I've been doing with Italy, and some of it from a distance, a lot of it has been really sharing those lessons. So, you know, the, the first and probably most important lesson from China was that um, in the absence of a vaccine and in the absence of a drug that works against this disease, you could actually use fundamental public health measures around finding cases very rapidly, isolating those cases, quarantining their contacts, and slow down what is a respiratory pathogen. And for those of us who grew up in the world of, uh, you know, infectious disease control, one of the almost ingoing assumptions is a respiratory pathogen is almost impossible to stop without a vaccine. And so the first big lesson out of China was, this is not flu. This is not the pathogens you're used to. This is one that you can actually stop with these core public health measures. Super, super important lessons. That was a single, you know, we are not going into this war unarmed. That was really really the big lesson. People look at China and they talk about the shutdowns and the lockdowns and the rest of it. Those were enablers. Those were not the tools that turned the tide and stopped the, uh, the, the outbreak in, in, in China. So that was the first big lesson. But the second really big lesson out of China was that to get an edge on this virus, though, you have to move very, very fast. Speed is everything because this is a respiratory pathogen at the end of the day. So you've got to be able to move very, very quickly to get in front of it. The virus can increase exponentially, which means you have to think exponentially, not incrementally, to get in front of it. And to achieve speed, what China, and that really brought us to that you know, third lesson, was it realized that 
the medical community, yes, will deal with the consequences of this outbreak, you know, taking care of the sick, etc. But it is going to be the population that will really have to stop the outbreak. And that population is going to do it by washing their hands, by covering their mouths, by understanding the symptoms, by rapidly getting tested, having a very high index. So the population was primed, accountable, active in a way that is simply extraordinary. The next big piece that they learned was that, again, in terms of getting the speed, you need your people, right? Don't, don't, don't wait for the people to get to the medical system and then look at them. You know, get them involved even earlier. But the next piece was to achieve that speed, you need to take full advantage of technology. And China, um, I, I think few people in, in the West really realize how technologically enabled China is. That technological enablement when I've looked at what, how China was able to deal with it, and also Singapore as well, seems to have been so key because it, was, it enabled you to track who you were with, who, if you were infected, who you might have come into contact with through uh, a tube journey or um, an Uber journey. The importance of technology played out, I'd say, in, in like three big ways. One way was it helped to run the response itself. Yes, people's cell phones, in, in some places, I understand, I didn't actually see it, but they actually had a little um, indicator on it that would go from green to yellow to red, depending on where they actually were and the probability that they were in a high-risk zone for actually being exposed to the, uh, to the disease. And that would affect then quarantine decisions and all sorts of stuff. But there was a whole bunch of technology that just helped um, make it possible to run a fast response on this scale involving hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, 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 of people and eventually basically all of society there. But um, So that was one part to help enable the response. And, and a neat example of that, for example, um, one day I was in Chengdu, which is the capital of Sichuan province. That's where all the pandas are. So the reason we had gone there was this is a massive state which has both urban areas as well as rural areas. And we wanted to know, like, okay, great, maybe the cities you're taking care of. What about these rural populations? And the governor was really interesting in the meeting I was having with the governor. He said, well, we were rolling out 5G at the same time this thing hit. And the big plan was to enable uh, Chengdu, the capital, first. And we decided, no, no, we would roll out in the rural areas first so that we could establish centers of excellence that could be completely enabled and in real time work with the peripheral areas areas to provide them the best possible guidance, the best possible support, both to help and manage their disease, but to help keep patients alive as well and people alive. And everything they talked about always came back to keeping people alive and saving lives. But that was one sector. And then in the schools, everybody keeps saying, well, they closed all the schools in China. Actually, the schools, the buildings closed, learning went online. And, 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 and just the, the whole, the whole uh, I, I kept hearing this from lots of mothers that I met, actually, about how their kids were um, in schooling, frankly. And then when it came to all the support services, the, um, remember, people, uh, the city of Wuhan, for example, locked down 15 million people living in their apartments or their apartment compound for over a month and a half. Those people have to eat. Those people have all these other services, have to work. All done online. Well, not the eating part, of course, but at least the ordering of the food and the, re the, the return of it. So technology, you know, because it was such a technologically advanced society and literate society, it could very rapidly move online. And, you know, that physical distancing did not become a barrier to its ability to, to implement the strategies it had to. My entire family is now online learning. All my kids are online learning. <laughs> I will say they're not a huge fan of it. Uh, in fact, my, the youngest says online learning is boring. <laughs> so <laughs> not huge fans here. But t just let's move on to Italy. And tell me, what are the lessons that you've seen come out of there? The first big lesson is just make sure you can run a, a safe system. The second big learning out of Italy, and, and I think that they, um, uh, you know, they, they did well in this regard, is they recognized that 
This disease does not increase linearly. It increases exponentially. So we have to think in big leaps in terms of our measures to get ahead of a virus like this. You can't sort of um, pussyfoot around it. You, you, and, and what they did was they, you know, they saw, they went from, you know, uh, uh, individuals and dozens of cases one day to hundreds and X and boom, they locked down huge areas that were affected because they just realized we, 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 we've got to get, um, take these extraordinary measures to try and take the heat out of this so we can get the other measures in place. So I think that was, you know, another um, um, uh, major uh, learning out, 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 of, um, out of Italy was, was, was that. And then related to that, of course, was just the whole uh, speed and risk of the international spread. You know, I, I, I remember um, way back when we were looking at H1N1, that was the last big pandemic of, of flu um, about 10 years ago. And it, it, it didn't cause a lot of deaths, but it spread very rapidly. In China, it took 123 days for that or something like that, 130 days to infect every province. This disease took 23 days. And I don't think it actually transmits as well as flu. You know, we're just in a much more interconnected world, the consequences of which for controlling a disease like this are huge. Can I intervene with a question? I, I, it's very striking listening to you, Bruce, the, the feeling or the picture you paint of the virus moving faster than the things we learn about it and want to share with each other. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, I, I think, you know, this virus does move with incredible speed. Um, what, what I think is, is truly extraordinary is the speed with which we've learned about this virus. Remember, this is a brand new virus emerged uh, 10, 12 weeks ago in, you know, in terms of our, our knowledge of it. And during that time, when it first emerged and, and people keep asking me about what happened in Wuhan, and I say, look, they had a new virus causing a new disease in a new place with a, which required new approach approaches in terms of trying to control it. We didn't understand any of those things. We didn't even understand how to diagnose it. And in that time, and, and, and here, credit has got to go just to the ingenuity and skill of Chinese scientists. I mean, they sequenced this thing within days. Um, they had primers and, and a test, you know, a few days later. They made all of that publicly available as fast as they generated it. And, um, and then, you know, they learned how to actually control it. And I think that, you know, they, and then if you look in the scientific literature, they just share that information incredibly you know quickly this is what this disease does this is how we're trying to uh, control it and this is the impact it's having um so i i think actually um the learnings have moved very very quickly i don't think the listening has kept up with the learning um so I, I think there's been an incredible speed of learning, incredible dissemination of lessons, um, but the listening and application of it, and you know how much of that is because of who was actually doing the talking. And the other thing, of course, was it was landing on not deaf ears, but ears that wanted to hear a different story. They wanted to hear it was going to be okay, that this was like flu, this is like seasonal flu. And it's not, and it never was. We knew that from day one. So how do we address that problem? The, the extent to which the problem here is really a communications problem as much as it is a scientific or medical one? It's a leadership problem, um, uh, to, to tell you the truth. Uh, because I think, and, and, and it's a little bit of a mindset, but when faced, uh, and, and I remember in the early days of this, I remember a friend of mine from New York uh, uh, was back and forth with me. I hadn't heard from him in, in, in some years, um, which is one of the great things about the work I do. <laughs> I, I regularly hear from people I haven't heard from for years, people I really like. Uh, anyway, he, he wrote, and he was in the business of looking at, um, at, 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 uh, at advising businesses on investments and things like that, and, and you know, where the world was going. And I, you know, and he said, look, when I compare this to um, uh, flu, flu kills this many more people in the U.S., et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, you're comparing a disease that we've known for decades and, and decades for which we have vaccines, for which we know, you, you know, the genetics of it, how it evolves with a disease that we've known for at that point four weeks. The huge, you've got to respect the uncertainties um, with this. And when you respect those, you err on the side of no regrets. This may be a very serious disease. This may spread very, very rapidly. We have got to be prepared. It may overwhelm our healthcare system. Um, and and I, I, I think, uh, you, you know, I think it's a very human need to try and th think the opposite. But, um, you know, for those who work in crisis management and, and, and 
this is how we think. Um, it's not being pessimist. It's it's being you know optimistic about what can be done. But it can only uh, you can only be optimistic if you really envisage how serious this can be. It's a very different experience listening to you talk about COVID-19 than it is to listening to politicians. I'm here in the UK and I personally have been waiting for something to get more serious, for the reaction to get more serious. And it wasn't until last night that it looked like Boris Johnson had finally gotten some coaching in terms of how to actually talk about this. I don't expect you to, to give me a, a, a critique of, of politicians, but how do you get people to listen to experts, because that's really what this is about. Well, well, I'm actually very, very sympathetic to the challenge that politicians face here, because they need to put in place, um, as we talked about earlier, kind of exponential measures for, for you know, for, for very, very, uh, what people will think is, is small levels of disease. And that's a very, very hard thing uh, to communicate to. You know, the politicians often get this, many of the ones I've talked to, they got that right at the very beginning. But what they realized was, once I put those things in place, the clock starts ticking. And I, uh, in terms of how long I'm going to be able to do that, in terms of how much disease I can prevent and how many lives I can save, I'm really to take a bit of a hit and do this later because I think that's going to save more lives and ultimately uh, more of our society and, and, and economy as well. So I think um, what, what I've seen is most politicians acutely actually aware of, of, of these things and, and, and trying to find that balance um, because they know that they've got to bring that whole population with them, um, especially when it comes to the kind of measures. Isolating yourself for 14 days for a DZ you may or may not have, um, this is, these, these are tough. And, um, you, you know, armies operate in very different ways when, you know, they're, they're, they're drilling versus when they're looking, you know, at the whites of the eyes of the enemy, so to speak. And so it's really when the disease is, is upon you that it, you can marshal your troops in a different way. And I, I think, you know, explicitly or implicitly or intuitively, that's in the minds of many of the politicians who have to respond and manage. It's a tough job. They have a tough job right now. There's discussion now around unifying efforts and taking collective action. And do you see that happening? And how important do you think that is? I, I, I think it's super important because we're dealing with a brand new disease that we've not seen before, first of all. So if we look at the whole area of understanding this disease and generating new knowledge, um, the faster you can pool information and results, whether from on the natural history of this disease, you know, how, that means what it looks like in different populations, how it affects the young, the old, etc., um, to how drugs work in terms of trying to, to, to um, counteract it. You know, the more you can pool together experience from multiple countries, the faster you're going to get to your answer. And that's why WHO, for example, launched this thing called the Solidarity Trial, which it's the simplest trial design in the world. But what it allows is multiple countries around the world to um, uh, uh, what's the word, to enroll patients very, very quickly and get to an answer in two weeks that might normally take two years. I mean, it, it, there's extraordinarily clever people putting together ideas about how to get countries to collaborate together in, 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 and get, a, get answers in, in ways we hadn't envisaged before. So that, that, that's exciting, you know, in terms of generating new knowledge. But then as we look also just in terms of responding to the disease, um, the ventilators, the masks, the PPEs, there's actually an awful lot of that in the world, but most of it is in the wrong places. So to get it to the right places and into the hands of the right people requires a tremendous amount of both international collaboration, but collaboration also within countries. Countries. And in China, if I just divert for a second, you know, one of the most beautiful things I saw, and I saw so many, you know, just absolutely beautiful things at the individual level, and the way, the way, um, uh, I, I was going to say ordinary people, but there's nothing ordinary about these people uh, act. Um, so, for example, when we went to Wuhan, the most difficult thing was getting, physically getting there, because the flights, there's no flights, the roads are closed, there's no trains, etc. But what they arranged was a special bullet train that we were able to take that, that got us there. 
when we got there and we got off, it was, you know, the most haunting experience in some way, an eerie experience, because we pulled into this hyper-modern, gigantic, beautiful train station, and we got out of this ultra-modern bullet train into a city of skyscrapers that was silent with this empty uh, 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 train station where, you know, our footsteps echoed through the night there as, as we got off the train. And then I heard people behind me, and I thought, well, hang on, what's going on? I thought no one could get off in Wuhan. And I turned around, there's another group, and I, I asked, I said, so who are these people? Who are you? And went to say hello to them. And it was a group of volunteer medical uh, folks from Guangdong, the city we had just left, who had come to Wuhan to help. And, you know, just this incredible solidarity. They said, look, we've got the outbreak under control in, in Guangdong. We learned a lot about how to manage this disease, so we volunteered to come and we're going to run one of the wards here in Wuhan. And I think few people outside realize just the 40,000 medical workers from around China went into Wuhan with all their own PPE, not to use their other PPE as well, uh, protective equipment, to help manage this response. But And every one of them I talked to were so proud of what they were doing. Because I mentioned this to someone who said, oh yeah, they probably had to do that. Are you kidding? These people volunteered. This was like incredible, incredible humans, right? And it was all about saving lives and doing their part. So I wonder, is it too early to talk about recovery? Is it too soon to be doing that? It's never too early to think about recovery. Um, and, and in fact, in any crisis, and, and you will find you know, the pros at this, they go into this thinking about how, how they're going to come out of it. Um, because it will often affect your measures and what you're doing in real time. So for example, if you want to be able to lift the major you know, restrictions you put in place on people's movements or the shutdowns you put in place in terms of businesses, etc. You have to think, what do I have to do to be able to do that safely? Well, you need to be able to test every suspect case so you know where this thing is. You need to be able to rapidly isolate anybody, however sick or not they are, so that they don't infect anyone else and slow this thing down. You don't reinfect all these things you're opening. And then you need to be able to properly quarantine people. So if you're not thinking about that because it's going to take you weeks to put that in place um, if you don't have it. And, you know, it took China, you know, weeks to build these capacities. And um, so thinking about recovery is useful in that it forces you to think, gosh, how do I lift these restrictions? How do I do that safely? What do I have to put in place? And then all of a sudden you start thinking, okay, if I want to lift these restrictions in three weeks, I better work backwards to how fast I got to have enough testing capacity in my country, enough, uh, you know, uh, uh, ventilators and, and beds, enough uh, to manage any surge that accompanies it um, uh, as, as well. I met a number of the governors and, and, and mayors in China. And remember, these are mayors of cities of 25 million people and 15 million people and governors of a province of 150 million people. I mean, they have massive responsibility and they're managing huge, huge resources. And so I would say to them, like, well, congratulations, you're, you know, you're bringing cases down. Um, you, you must feel, you know, good about that and, and, and what next? And... Every one of them said to me, we're building more hospital beds and we're buying more ventilators. <laughs> and I said, excuse me, but your cases are coming down. And they said, look, we do not know where this virus came from. We don't think it's going to go to zero. We don't have a vaccine. So we are worried that we get it down and then it's going to surge again. We'll get more cases or whatever. But we cannot afford to stop our economy again. We cannot afford to close our hospitals and make them COVID hospitals. We cannot afford to stop all the things that are so important to us as a society. So what we're going to do is make sure we have the capacity to manage this thing at scale if we have to without closing businesses and, and the other measures we've had to take. So, you know, here, here were these, um, and it's so counterintuitive, and, and it was so funny because here were these governors and mayors expending tremendous resources to buy ventilators, build hospital beds, etc., for a disease that was disappearing in front of them due to their extraordinary work. But then as I came back to the West and talked about it and told the story, um, People were saying, yes, but we have a more resilient health system. Yes, but we have this or that, whatever. And, you know, here we are uh, 
four weeks later with overflowing intensive care units, not enough ventilators, um, you know, healthcare workers getting infected because they don't have masks and gowns. We're paying a terrible, terrible price um, for this. And it may well not have been any different. Um, you know, one of the things I always tell the people who work with me, they go, oh, gosh, that must really frustrate you. And, and I know um, you fight wars forward. Um, you, you, we are where we are today. We move forward. Um, and, you know, at the end of all this, you go back, you learn the lessons, and you try and, and do it better next time. But uh, the finger pointing, the looking at the mistakes, uh, it, it, it doesn't really help. Fight this one forward. There's a lot of lives to be saved out there. A lot of disease can be prevented. In, in that spirit of, of forward, if you were going to summarize the lessons of communication and leadership that you've come to based on all of your experience, and particularly the last couple of months, what would you, what would you say? First of all, tell people straight up what you're dealing with. Um, don't soft pedal anything. You can always dial it back, but tell them straight up. People are adults. Um, people will take responsibility. They will do the right thing, but they have to know what they're dealing with. And one of the biggest challenges we faced in this was that people thought were confused whether or not this was a severe disease, number one. Number two, tell them what they can do to take to help themselves. I heard again and again people saying, you know, almost weeping sometimes on interviews saying they felt so helpless. And I thought, my goodness, that's a, com- a, a huge uh, a communication failure because no one more than you as an individual controls whether or not you get COVID. No one rather than you as an individual controls whether or not your family gets it and the probability of, of adverse outcomes. You have huge control of the potential outcomes here. And then the third thing is how you engage them at, in a meaningful way in the response itself um, and, and, and give them you know, the time horizons as, as well over which these actions are going to play out. And then what they can do to, you know, for the broader effort. And we're seeing extraordinary civil action in terms of helping uh, manage this disease. You know, when I was leaving my uh, apartment building this morning here in Switzerland, there was a little uh, sign from, uh, you know, Veronique on the seventh floor who was saying, um, you know, for any of you who may be housebound for any reason or, or, or a bit sick or just too tired to do it, um, I'm very happy to do your shopping for them. And then pasted right below that was, hi, we are Amy and Suzanne from the uh, fourth floor. We can help when Veronique runs out of energy or shopping bags or whatever. <laughs> But it's just fantastic to see um, what people will do. All they need is to understand how they help. So that's another such big piece of the communications. Wow, that was amazing. So much information and so packed right? with hope at the same time with fear. But you see, when you're Dr. Navarro and... Fortunately for me, I have worked with him over, you know, like over time. I know that what he's mapping out in his mind is what he wants to see is global mobilization. And he wants to see how do I mobilize every government so that they can implement measures at the federal and at the local level. How do I see private sector mobilizing? How do I see individuals mobilizing? And in order to mobilize all of them or the instruments that we need, how do we need communication? And the one thing that I heard again and again is turn up the volume. Mm. And in this turn up the volume that he mentioned a number of times is the role of actually organizations like our city to be talking about how serious it is and how important it is. I don't want to have anyone having the illusion that this is up to individuals. Absolutely not. This is up to governments to take the measurements and the policies that allow individuals to understand clearly what they should and should not do. Individuals, of course, have to develop a sense of global solidarity and personal responsibility, but this is absolutely not about us. This is about governments getting their act together, understanding what their role is, and having private sector CEOs launching measurements for their employees. This is a top-down, bottom-up issue. So, of course, leaders matter. I thought it was really encouraging that in India, Prime Minister Modi locked down the country, even though there were only 500 confirmed cases. And one of the clips that we didn't play from Bruce Elward, in fact, was how important he said journalists and podcasts like ours were in terms of getting out 
the serious messages, the real news, and avoiding anything that is not true. Two things I think I take from here, which is, one, how important it is, the last point that you mentioned, Edie, uh, with Bruce, which is collective action and the importance of actually being unified. And in that sense, uh, World Human with our Hispanic arm, what we're trying to do is get every Hispanic to have a platform, a clearinghouse for information and action. Hispanic 60 million people in the States are most affected by COVID, particularly small businesses, entrepreneurs, independent workers. The restaurants that are closing, the hotels that are sucking people are affecting directly this community. So what we started doing is shifting the energy, the resources, the infrastructure and the networks that we had for the Hispanic Star campaign, which was for perception change of Hispanics and mobilize it and move it to create something which is Hispanic Stars, but in action. So we're launching as a fact today, the Hispanic Recovery Plan, which is a clear House for Information and Action with the aim to communicate, organize, and mobilize, to have weekly calls in which we bring experts to be able to talk and give an update of what's happening, but also to mobilize everyone to create a, a sort of like a marketplace for people that need and people that want to give. Because the experience of Bruce in seeing in his, in his building, someone saying, I'll do the shopping for you. We have to provide a platform, a digital platform for people to do that all the time. When people lost a job and they can no longer have a studio to give a yoga lesson or someone uh, you know, like who was working in a kitchen doesn't have a space, you need to be able to have a, almost like a Craigslist to see who can help me. I can give yoga lessons online. Who wants to hire me? Because this is a time in which solidarity matters and having a recovery plan matters even more. And in that sense, the second point is that World Human got called by the United Nations to help on the response of coronavirus-19, particularly on this area of communication and turning up the volume. And what they said, what they need the most, is to have a narrative on three phases. The first one is health. So we need to make sure that we are uh, talking about the emergency and flattening the curve. Number two, about global solidarity, suppression, trying to make sure that people understand that we belong to the same human family. And if there is one thing that is positive about COVID-19 is that it's humanizing everybody so that we understand that it doesn't matter what political party we have or not, it can touch you, this disease can get you, and it can affect us all the same way. So we're starting to realize how important it is to be with our family, how important it is to be nice to each other. So the second part that the United Nations is willing to do is global solidarity. And the third one, which has not been spelled out yet, will be recovery, I'm pretty sure. And in that sense, Edie, Global Goalscast should be an arm to be talking about these three steps that we have so that we can, as humanity, go back to our feet, being more solidarity with each other while we heal. One of the things I heard very strongly from Dr. Nabarro and that he's reiterated since speaking to us in his online narratives, which I hugely suggest you go and read, is the effect on poorer groups of people and poorer countries as well. And I'm really interested in, in what's happening in Mexico, Claudia. I mean, like I was telling you about the Hispanics and Hispanics, you know, like uh, from the 60 million people, there's a huge majority, 70% are Mexican. So our connection between Hispanics and Mexico is huge and Hispanics in America have already understood have already felt the impact have already seen someone getting sick have already lost their jobs are in a state of panic and that's why having something like a Hispanic recovery plan moves people from fear to action but it is absolutely devastating for someone like me Mexican Hispanic living in the States seeing Mexico and seeing how the president just over the weekend said that Mexicans uh, you know, are stronger than a virus and that we should hold each other very tight and hug each other in the Mexican way <laughs> and then just go and have dinners in the fondas. And just yesterday, the governor of Puebla, for God's sake, he said that coronavirus hits only rich people. Suggesting that, uh, suggesting that Mexico, you know, like one, is not rich, two, that is going to be invisible uh, or invincible. And those kind of things are so dangerous. That's why I was saying it all starts with the leadership in this case. 
In rich countries, poor people are the most economically vulnerable. So it's fine to tell everyone to stay home, but hospitals in New York, nurses are reporting that some of their patients are telling them they can't afford to stay home. People that do gig work, like driving for Uber and for Lyft. In the UK, there's been an announcement that we'll see workers be able to get 80% of their salaries paid up to a certain amount, but there's still been no announcement for the self-employed. And so when I was on my run this morning, I did still see a lot of people going out to work. And they did not look like key workers in terms of hospital workers to me. That's where it is super important. And I did work like Dr. Navarro in a couple of pandemics, SARS and Ebola. And they have the same curve all the time. The question is, how kind of curve do we want to use for the recovery of ours? So we can be a V shape, which means you go down fast, but then equally you have a plan and then you recover fast. So it goes down fast, you go up fast. Are we going to allow these to have a U shape, which is low down? So you go down and you stay low for longer and then you go up, you know, like, and then you go up in the other way. What we cannot allow this to happen is to be an L shape where you go down and then you stay low for long. What I am thinking that what, what a, the, the part of a recovery that is so important is because moves people's mindset from one place which is static and fearful to having a plan, to having looking forward. That's why doing this thing about getting Hispanics to have a plan, about recovery plan, is mobilizing all the resources that we know of so that people can apply for credits and apply for loans because resources are getting put, at least in this country, in America. There's more than $18 billion available for people that have small businesses and being entrepreneur. Also for those people that have lost their jobs and they cannot afford to stop working, there are resources that if you put them together in a collective action, it's much easier to deal with as a situation that if you do that in isolation and fear. And so that's the play in which I think that the most vulnerable are for sure the people that you're mentioning, Mm. people in the gig economy, in the shared economy, and working in the service industry. And I think it's important to talk about the the lessons that we've learned, which we heard in this episode, Asia actually has done better. There's a tendency to dismiss the lessons from China. Authoritarian, Eastern culture must be different. But Nabarro said, and I think what you're saying too, is that they have experience of SARS. They understood the danger. They also have incredible technology to track people and an acceptance from the population that tracking is necessary to help combat that. And I think we're seeing the effects of that. And so for all our listeners, we do want to give you the encouragement of the power that you have to make sure that you take this seriously, that you stay home, that you wash your hands, that you have that sense of authority over your colleagues, over your peers, but that you also have a sense of solidarity for those people that cannot stop working or that cannot actually get a job anymore. So this is a time for us to be agents of change and to have solidarity for each other. And here at the Global Goalscast, we will continue reporting on this virus and we will continue reporting on what the world has done, what the lessons learned and the best practices are. And in the meantime, the power is with you. If you want to support our effort in doing that, do let us know. All right, so Claudia, stay safe, wash your hands. And see you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you so much. Like, subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, follow us on social media at Global Goalscast. If you live in America and want to be involved and support the Hispanic effort, go to hispanicstar.org. See you next time. Global Goalscast was hosted by Edie Lush and Claudia Romo Edelman. We are editorial gurued by Mike Oreskes. Editing and sound production by Simon James. Our operations director is Michelle Kuprider, and our interns, Brittany Segura and Taryn Rennie. Music in this episode was courtesy of Universal Production Music, one of the world's leading production music companies creating and licensing music for film, television, advertising, broadcast, and other media, including podcasts. Original music by Neil Hale 
Angelica Garcia, Simon James, Katie Crone, and Andrew Phillips. Thanks to CBS News Digital. The struggle is real, and we know that firsthand being daughters of hardworking immigrants. That's why on La Lucha is Real podcast, hablamos un poquito de todo. Somos Angel and Edith, long-term best friends who have authentic conversations, giving us space to be vulnerable without judgment because La Lucha is real. We want all of our amigos who listen to us to feel a part of the conversation and feel empowered to become a better version of themselves. A veces bromeando y a veces llorando, pero siempre mejorando. La Lucha is Real podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, everyone. I'm Sarah Weldon, CEO of Trufinco, a finance company dedicated to helping both budding and established small businesses. I'm thrilled to be hosting Business Perfect Formula, a podcast designed to demystify business funding, real estate investing, and business credit. My goal is to simplify the complexities of alternative lending, showing you that navigating the financial landscape can be straightforward and stress-free. Business Perfect Formula is available wherever you listen to podcasts.